1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? This is Paul speaking. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. 
I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Well, the Winter Olympics are scheduled to start in just a few weeks, which means that curling is about to explode back into our national consciousness. Now, of course, there's a lot of political and social back and forth surrounding these Olympics, but at their best, the Olympics are about world-class athletes competing in the games. The drama comes from having all of these people, many of whom have trained their entire lives for this moment, in one place competing with one another, and only a handful will win. That's why you might watch a sport like speed skating or ice dancing, not because you love those sports, but because you want to see someone's effort pay off in glorious victory. Or, if you're from Philadelphia like me, to see it crumble in agonizing defeat. <laughs> to see someone's life's ambitions, to see all of that blood, sweat, and tears come to fruition, it's, it's a remarkable thing. Well, the ancient city of Corinth was no stranger to these kinds of games. From the year 581 BC on, Corinth had played host to what were called the Isthmian Games. They were like the Olympics, except they were held every year instead of every four years. And so when the Apostle Paul wanted to paint an image for the church at Corinth about what the Christian life should look like, it, it was natural for him to come up with the image of an athlete competing for a prize, for a, a wreath. Though you may never know the, the joy of victory and the agony of defeat in the realm of athletics, uh, you may never find yourself at the starting line of a sporting event that's being watched by the entire world. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul tells us that each one of us is engaged in a contest, in a race, with much, much more at stake. And so if you don't already have a Bible open, I think you'll be helped to have a Bible open as uh, we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll be referring back to the things that Paul says here in his letter to the church at Corinth. If you're not normally a, a church attender, uh, this is something that uh, Christians do in their uh, worship services together, not because we need more things to do, but because we actually think the most important thing we can do as a church is listen to God, and God speaks to us through his word. We don't have to guess what God is like. We don't have to guess who he is and what he's done for us in Christ and how we ought to live. Uh, but the best thing for us to do is to open God's word and to read it and try to understand it together each week. And so that's why we dedicate this time uh, to a sermon. Now, if you have been here for the last few sermons in the book of 1 Corinthians, you may remember that in chapters 8 to 10, the apostle is answering questions or objections that the church had raised about some things he'd written to them earlier. So this church, uh, Paul had started this church. He left to go plant other churches. Uh, they had had written correspondence, and we can tell that the correspondence had become a little bit testy. Uh, and the church at Corinth was starting to push back on some of the things Paul said, particularly when he instructed them not to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols uh, in the local pagan temple. And it seems like from Paul's answers to the Corinthians, they had kind of four ways that they were pushing back against him. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first two ways, right? They said, we all have knowledge that idols aren't real, right? If there's no such thing as a fake God, why does it matter if we eat this meat? And remember, they said, we all have knowledge that, that food isn't all that important, right? And we saw, in fact, that's true. God's not concerned about the food we put in our bodies, particularly when it comes to our spiritual well-being. 
We'll deal with another objection, Lord willing, next week. They had, it seems, almost a magical view of the sacraments. They were arguing that no spiritual harm could come to them because they had been baptized and were taking the Lord's Supper. But here in chapter 9, he deals with what seems to be the objection that Paul himself didn't have the authority to tell them what to do. It seems like some members of the church didn't feel like they were really obligated to listen to Paul and to take his instructions seriously in this matter at all. And so chapter 9, in some ways, amounts to Paul's defense of himself. And so as we look at this defense, let's see three things that Paul tells us. First, let's see how Paul did not use his rights. Second, let's see how Paul did use his freedoms. And then finally, we'll look at how Paul ran his race. So how Paul didn't use his rights, how he did use his freedoms, and how he ran his race. So first, let's consider how Paul didn't use his rights. And we'll see that in verses 1 to 18. So if you have your Bible open, it'll be at the beginning of this chapter. The problem seems to be demonstrated for us there at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2. So Paul says there, starting in the middle of verse 1, Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul's responding to those in Corinth who want freedom to ignore his instructions, saying that he's not really an apostle. An apostle was someone who had been sort of sent authoritatively by God to go and begin these churches and speak to them on God's behalf. And so he says, look, I can get some people not respecting my authority, but but you? Right, Paul had planted this church. He had labored among them for years to see them come to Christ He says there in verse 1 that they are his workmanship. They're the fruit of his labors as an apostle. And so he saw their faith in Christ and their existence as a church was proof that he was an apostle. Right? If you remember back in chapter 2, Paul tells the church that when he preached the word to them back at the beginning, when he first told them about Jesus, it was, he says, in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Right? There's an irony here. The very existence of the church that was questioning Paul and his authority was itself proof of his ministry. So we see there, beginning in verse 1, a sort of barrage of rhetorical questions aimed at Paul's defense of himself. He says there at the beginning of verse 1, am I not free? In context, it seems that Paul is saying to the people who were asserting their freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols, he's saying to them, look, I'm no less free than you are. Then again, he says, am I not an apostle? Right? This is the issue at hand. Further, he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Right? We know that Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Uh, we read about that back in Acts chapter 9. And so Paul here is reminding them that he has the same eyewitness experience of Christ as the other apostles. Men that the, the church at Corinth would certainly recognize as apostles, as authoritative figures. People like Peter and James and John. And so if all that's true, well, we're left to wonder, why are some people suggesting that Paul isn't an apostle? What would ever make them think that? What would make them think that he doesn't have the authority to tell them not to eat this meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Well, if you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, so Paul, it's a later letter that Paul wrote to this same church. I think think we get a sense of some of the dynamics and the tension between them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, we, we read Paul say this, 
Or did I commit a sin, he says, in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. It seems that it was an issue for some people in the church that Paul refused to take money from the congregation for his own personal support. To them, in their cultural context, it was a sign of great weakness that Paul worked for a living. To them, only slaves worked for a living. People with authority were either independently wealthy or if they were a teacher or an orator, they would have some patron who would support them. Uh, To the Corinthians, you could measure your value and the value of your message and your authority by how much people were willing to pay for it. And so Paul seems to act in a way that is somehow beneath someone sent by God. We know from Acts chapter 18 that Paul supported himself when he was at Corinth by working as a tent maker. This was particularly dirty, disgusting, unhygienic work. It was definitely beneath someone who was looking to project authority and to build his reputation. So here in verse 3 of our passage for this morning in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul makes a defense of his behavior, particularly his unwillingness to take money from the the Corinthians. And he tells them it's not because he's not worthy of their support, but rather he gives them four reasons why he, he actually is entitled He says, look, I I definitely deserve your support. And he gives them four reasons. There in verse 7, he appeals to common practice. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Paul says, look, it's just common practice in warfare, farming, shepherding. Everybody gets paid for the work they do. No one works for free. Why should Paul have to? Second, in verses 8 to 11, he he appeals to a a biblical principle. He says there, starting in verse 8, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So he says, look, it's not just human authority and customs. It's actually God's law gives us this principle that someone is is entitled to pay for their work. There in verse 9, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4 in the law of Moses. And he draws out a principle from it, basically saying if, if an ox should be able to eat as it works, God's not actually concerned about oxen when he gives that commandment. He's actually giving us a principle that people deserve to be paid for the work they do. And so Paul's saying, don't I have a right to be paid? His third line of defense begins there in verse 12. He says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? It does seem like the Corinthians were happily supporting other workers, in which case Paul deserved to be first in line for their money. Again, he was the the apostle who had founded this church. No one could compete with him when it came to serving and caring for this congregation. And then his fourth line of argument comes from Jewish custom. There in verses 13 and 14, he says, Don't you know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? 
In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. If you were a priest serving in the temple in Jerusalem, that meant you weren't out fishing and farming all day. And so the idea was that you were supported with the food that was sacrificed in the temple. There in verse 14, Paul says it it ought to work the same way in the church. Those who spend their time preaching the gospel should get their living through that work, presumably through the support of the churches. Paul's probably referring to Luke chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus sends out his disciples to preach, and he tells them, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. All of that demonstrates that Paul has a right to expect and receive support from the church. So it's not that he's somehow not an apostle, and that's why he didn't take any money from them. It's not that he's somehow inferior and unworthy of their support. Rather, he simply chose not to. He chose not to take their money. And he tells us why there at the end of verse 12. So after asserting all of his rights, he says there in verse 12, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, that is, the right to get paid. But we endure anything rather than put an an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul is not concerned about his status. Rather, he's worried that taking money would be a hindrance to people accepting the message about Jesus. We know that Paul was raising money for the the relief of the saints in Jerusalem who were struggling in a famine. And we know from 2 Corinthians that some people in the church were starting to get a little salty about it and starting to accuse Paul of being a little too interested in money. And so perhaps reading the room and understanding the dynamics there, Paul decided not to take any money from the Corinthians so that no one could accuse him of being in it for the cash. Now, his not taking the money did prove to be an issue in the long run. But Paul judged that it was better to work as a tanner rather than to be seen taking money. Maybe this is because Corinth was a a town full of professional talkers. Right? There, there were people, orators, who went around giving speeches for money, and so maybe Paul wanted to distinguish his voice from theirs by, by working for free. Maybe he thought that taking money and building up his authority in that way would contradict the message of the cross that he had told them about, that in chapter 1 and 2 he describes as such weakness and folly. Whatever his exact thinking, Paul is passionate about this issue. He says in verse 15, he'd rather die than be deprived of this ground for boasting. Now, he couldn't boast in preaching the gospel. That was something he says that he's compelled to do. He couldn't do otherwise. There in verse 16, he says this, If I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Preaching was bound up in Paul's call to Christ, He was saved and called at the same time into the ministry of the gospel, taking it out to the Gentiles. And so he says, there's nothing for me to boast in there. It's not my decision. It's it's simply a stewardship that I'm required to keep. But what was his decision was his intention not to take any money from them. He absolutely had the right to their support, but he decided not to. And thus there was reward in it for him, both here on earth, where he got to see the fruit of his ministry, and in eternal life. So Paul has the right to their support, but he makes no use of it. 
So what's the takeaway for us from all of that? Well, let me suggest two things. First, it seems like a direct application of this passage is that it is okay for churches to provide financial support to the people who particularly set aside their time to minister the gospel. Whether that's people like me and Seth and Mike who work here or, or workers that we send out uh, into other places to preach the gospel. It's healthy for us as a church to stop and see the biblical reasons why we've ordered ourselves this way. In this case, Paul's principle that he repeats again in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is that it's entirely appropriate for those who spend their time laboring in the ministry of the gospel to make their living by the gospel. As Paul says there in verse 11, those who labor in sowing spiritual seeds can expect to reap some material provision from their labor. I remember the first time, or when I first came out to Sterling 16 years ago, I was talking to a family member uh, who's not a Christian and doesn't really understand how churches work. And so I was sharing our plans. Uh, We were at a church down in the city. There were about seven people who were going to come out with us to Sterling. Uh, We were going to join up with a little church of about seven people out there and try to get it going again. And uh, the hope was, you know, the congregation would grow to a point where it could support us. The church in the city was going to support us for a while, and the hope was that this church would grow. And she said, after kind of hearing me out, she said, so let me get this straight. Your your plan is to go to a place you've never been and hope to find enough people there who are willing to give you their money so that you can feed your family. And I thought, well, that's that's a bit reductionistic, but essentially, yeah, that's the the idea. What, What she couldn't understand and what, as I was listening, I was like, oh, I guess it does seem weird is that the gospel actually creates a relationship, a beautiful relationship, where on one hand, pastors are serving a congregation in love, right? Not for money, but for love of the church and the great joy of seeing the gospel spread and grow. And on the other hand, congregations love their pastors and and, and they love the spread of the gospel enough to give some of what the Lord has given to them in order to provide for their support, the support of gospel pastors and missionaries. And by God's grace, that's been my experience here. This congregation has always been very generous in the way that you support us. There are some days I sit back and think, I cannot believe I get paid to do this. This is the most amazing job in the world. And there are some days where I think, you could not pay me enough to do this if the Lord weren't calling me to it. But I think I can say with 100% certainty, there's never been a day where I've simply done it for the money. There's never been a day when I felt like the church wouldn't care for me and my family. And I think that's a sign of God's grace in our relationship and at work in the midst of us. I thank God for us and for what he's done through you. I think that's how it's supposed to be. The second thing we should notice here is Paul's example. Paul sacrifices his rights for the sake of the gospel. He could have insisted on payment and saved himself a lot of time, a lot of effort, even some embarrassment. He would have been more respected, more appreciated by people in the church. But that was not Paul's way. It's not what he cared about in the end. There in verse 15, he commits the ultimate American heresy. He says, I make no use of my rights. We love our rights and we are willing far too often to go to war with others if we think our rights have even theoretically been impinged upon. Brothers and sisters, not so with Paul. What he cared about was the gospel, the good news about Jesus that could call sinners from from death 
into spiritual life. What Paul cared about was seeing the gospel proclaimed and embraced. He didn't take money from the church. He supported himself. He'd even chosen not to get married, though he asserts here in chapter 9 that he had the right to do that. He explains why back in chapter 7. Right? Paul had a right to all of these things, but he cared more about the spread of the gospel. And this wasn't a way of life that Paul invented. It wasn't like Paul thought, you know what would be really great? Let me just sacrifice all of my rights to see other people come to Christ. No, Paul's simply imitating the, the self-giving, self-denying posture of the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who did not insist on his rights. The Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh and did not demand his rights in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't demand all of the honor and privilege that he was due as God on earth. But instead, he willingly sacrificed himself, going to the cross for our sake. And friends, that's Paul's pattern. And that's our pattern. As followers of Christ, we are called to joyfully sacrifice our rights, our privileges, for the benefit of others and for the spread of the gospel. And it actually brings us great joy to do so, to have a, a concrete opportunity to walk in the footsteps of our Savior. So friends, I wonder if you think about your relationship to the church in the same way that Paul did, and I would add Jesus did. Is your posture towards your brothers and sisters in the church one of happy sacrifice, foregoing your own rights, foregoing your own comfort for the growth and the benefit of others? Or is your default setting more to consider what you want, what you deserve, what, what serves you well? Are you willing to think of your engagement in the church family, not primarily in terms of what you get out of it, but how you might be a benefit to others, how you might work to see the gospel spread in their lives? Brothers and sisters, let's pray and let's work together to see this others-preferring, rights-deferring, Christ-imitating posture increasingly take root in our congregation. Paul didn't use his rights. He had the right to take money from the Corinthians, but decided instead to sacrifice for the gospel. Let's move on now and see how Paul did use his freedoms. You see that in verses 19 to 23. So in the preceding verses, Paul talked about how not exercising his rights helped to spread the gospel message. Now he tells us how he employed his freedoms in order to make the gospel known. You see there in verse 19, he tells us that he is free from all. Again, remember back at the verse 1, he asked rhetorically at the beginning of this chapter, am I not free? In context, he's, he's referring to his freedom from the law. Right, you have to remember the bigger issue here is whether or not the Corinthians can use their freedom in Christ to go eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. They wanted to use their freedoms even though it was harming their brothers and sisters in the church who had a more sensitive conscience. And so here Paul explains to the church how he uses his freedom. There in verse 22, he says he uses his freedom to become all things to all people. What he means is that he uses his freedom, his flexibility to make himself at home in different groups of people in the ancient world. There in verse 20, he says to the Jew, he became as a Jew. That is to say, he lived in a way that observed the law of Moses that they honored. 
He ate the same food that they ate. He observed their customs. There in verse 21, to those outside the law, that is to, to Gentiles or to non-Jews, to those people he lived as if he were a Gentile. That is to say, he didn't insist on Gentile customs. He ate their food, even though it wasn't clean according to the law of Moses. There in verse 22, he says that to the weak, he became as if he were weak. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that what Paul's talking about here is someone who has a, a sensitive conscience that doesn't allow them to use all of their freedoms in Christ. Some people were, were hung up on this idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so Paul calls them the weaker brother. They don't understand that in Christ, this food doesn't really matter. And Paul says, to those people, I, I became like them. I, I willingly forewent my freedom in order to live and to adopt their way of life. Well, why was Paul willing to live that way? He gives us a couple of reasons. He says there in verse 22, in order to save some. He says, to the weak, I became weak, verse 22, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. See, Paul understands that people need to be saved. That because of our sin, our, our unwillingness to live under God's authority, we stand under the just wrath of God. Just as, as a criminal stands before a judge condemned, in the same way we are guilty of violating God's law and we stand condemned before him. Paul's ministry of preaching the gospel is the means, he understands, by which many will put their trust in Christ. And so these criminals will be pardoned, will be forgiven, and saved from the judgment that they deserve. Four times there in verses 19 to 22, Paul says that he wants to win some. He becomes all things to all people so that he might save some people from the judgment that they deserve. Here in verses 19 to 22, four different times he says he wants to win some. Verse 19, he says win more. Verse 20, he wants to win Jews. Verse 21, he wants to win those outside the law, that is Gentiles. Verse 22, he wants to win the weak. This is the sort of positive side of saving. He wants to see people saved from God's judgment. But he also wants to win them to something, namely salvation and eternal life. You see, the good news about Jesus doesn't just save us from the judgment of God, but it wins us to a new relationship with him, whereby we as forgiven, pardoned rebels are now adopted into his family and have the sure hope of eternal life as his children. You see, Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice and as a substitute for us. And he was raised from the dead so that we could be saved from the power and penalty of sin. And so that we could be one, welcomed into the family of God. Friend, if you've not been saved from your sin, if you've not received the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus, I would urge you not to let another moment go by. If you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus or how you can become a follower of Jesus, I'd urge you to talk to someone about it. It is not something to put off. It is an urgent matter. I'd urge you to talk to the person who invited you. You can talk to me after the service or anyone that you've seen up here. We'd be delighted to tell you more about this message of the gospel that Paul understood could win you to salvation and save you from God's judgment. If we want to imitate Paul, 
brothers and sisters, we should take care to imitate his motivations. If you feel that you don't have Paul's passion for seeing the gospel spread among people who don't know Jesus, then probably on some level that's due to the fact that you don't have Paul's motivation. Right? If we really believe that Jesus will return at any moment and that God will at that time judge the world with perfect justice, if we believe that hell is a real place and that people who don't flee to Christ for salvation will go there for eternity, if we do more than just pay lip service to those biblical truths, well, friends, then we'd be very bold in communicating those things to the people in our life who don't know Christ. You know, if you looked over one day and your neighbor's house was on fire, I think you'd be pretty bold about communicating that reality to him. You wouldn't stop and say, well, you know, it seems a little forced. I don't really know him all that well. Maybe I'll pray that the Lord will bring people into his life that will tell him that his house is on fire. Right? Of course not. Paul understood that people needed to be saved. And he was willing to do whatever it took to help them to hear the only message that could bring them salvation. And that meant he used his freedom to remove barriers, to, to, to bring down the walls that might keep people from hearing the gospel. That's Paul's motivation. He knows people need to be saved. If you look at Paul's method here, he says, giving the impending wrath of God and the need to repent and hear the gospel, Paul says he's willing to use his freedom to become the servant of all. Look there in verses 20 to 21. He says, to those under the law, he became as one under the law. In order to evangelize Jews, he acted like a Jew. The Jews thought you were still required to keep the ceremonial law of God. Things like ritual purity and food laws. And so even though Paul knew that Christ's coming meant that they were no, under the, no longer under the law, Paul acted as if he was. He was free in a very real sense. But he willingly submitted himself to, the, to sort of lower barriers to people, knowing that, that these Jews would never listen to him if they saw him eating unclean food or behaving in a way that was offensive. To those outside the law, so the Gentiles, the non-Jews, there in verse 21, he says, I became like someone outside the law. Now, in both cases, he, he, he cautions us against misunderstanding. He, he warns us here. He's like, I, I'm not really under the Jewish law, right, even if I act like it sometime. And he says he might not follow the Jewish law when he's with Gentiles, but he knows that he's still a follower of Christ. He says there that he's under the law of Christ. And so he's not saying that we're simply free to sin away, right? We're free to obey God's will in Christ. We saw that back in 1 Corinthians 7, where in verse 19, Paul says this. He says, for neither circumcision, I'm sorry, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So Paul says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. To the Gentiles, I became as a Gentile. To the weak, I became as the weak. We can't imagine him saying, to the adulterers, I became as an adulterer, right? That's not what Paul's saying. Instead, he wants them to see how he's leveraged his freedom in Christ to the maximum benefit of the gospel message. He has great freedom to act in any kind of way in all of these non-moral issues. And so he doesn't indulge his preferences or simply do whatever he'd like. Right? Given his freedom in Christ to choose the way he wants to live, he always chooses to live in a way that commends the gospel to his audience. He chooses to act in ways that will not offend or confuse or distract people. <clears throat> to whom he's speaking. And brothers and sisters, so should we. We have to know that our great freedom in Christ 
means that we can leverage it to the utmost to proclaim the message of the gospel. We ought to use our freedoms to, to lower barriers that people might have that keep them from hearing about Jesus and being saved. Maybe it'll help if I give you an example from my life. This is a bit trivial, but I think it illustrates the, how to apply Paul's point here. So if you know me, you know that I have a lot of tattoos. And as a Christian, I'm perfectly free to, right? As we saw a few weeks ago, we're free to eat anything we'd like, right? The same principle applies to this issue, right? The problem is never what's on our skin or what we eat. The problem is in our hearts, right? That's my freedom in Christ. And in America today, having tattoos is pretty unremarkable, right? A lot of you have them. Your neighbors and coworkers have them. It doesn't really serve as an obstacle to the gospel. In fact, really the only people I ever run into who are upset about it are, are Christians, right? So they've already got the gospel. <laughs> and strangely, it actually serves sometimes to remove a barrier to the gospel for some people. So there are some people who maybe have tattoos themselves or have lived a certain way, and they think that, well, people like me can't become Christians because Christians are proper and conservative and buttoned up. And so while it's not an important thing at all, I, I can use my freedom in Christ to help reach people for Christ, for the, the gospel message, right? It's not the most important thing. The gospel is. I can help make it easier for people to hear the gospel. But when I go to other countries, especially non-Western countries, so when I'm in South Africa or the United Arab Emirates or in India, well, it's much more likely there that my my tattoos are going to be a stumbling block to, to Hindus or, or to Muslims, right? That the people who need to hear the gospel wouldn't listen to somebody like me who has tattoos. And so when I'm in those places, I wear long sleeve shirts with the, the sleeves rolled down. A few years back, Tarun, you'll remember this. We were in Vinakunda in a town sort of south mid-India uh, in July. And the church where I was speaking, because it was so hot, decided to hold the, the service outdoors uh, under a tent to try and get some relief from the heat. I looked at my phone before I went up to preach, and the, the phone just said 107 degrees. And I think it was like, and I'm out, right? The phone wouldn't turn back on for like two days. <laughs> right, and everyone there is wearing nice, comfortable, like short sleeve shirts. And there I am with my sleeves, like rolled down. Tarun took a picture of me, showed it to me later. I looked like I jumped into a swimming pool and then gotten up to preach, right? In that, it's not the most important thing in the world, but in that situation, right, even though I'm perfectly free and I could stand up and say, it's absolutely fine to have tattoos if you're a Christian, right? That's not how we use our freedoms, right? We don't want to put a stumbling block in front of other people, so we roll down our sleeves. Love compels us to prioritize someone else's spiritual need over my freedom. So here's what Paul's saying to us. If you're in Christ, you have received this amazing love. You have been granted incredible freedom. You are not obligated to earn God's love by any ritual or observance. And experiencing that love changes us. It makes us care more about the needs of other people and their need for Christ than we do our own preferences. We care more about people who are in danger of facing God's judgment than we do about our freedoms. So for you, as you think about your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, or your family members who don't yet know the Lord, is there anything in your life, anything in your way of living that makes it harder for them to hear the gospel from you? Right, I think there's a lot of ways we could apply this. Let me give you one to try and offend as many people as I can. 
in one swoop. Right? You are perfectly free in Christ to pretty much have a whole range of political opinions. Uh, you, you can wear t-shirts that ex express your political opinions. You can have bumper stickers on your car and signs in your yard. You are perfectly free to post your thoughts on all sorts of social topics like masks, and vaccines, and schools. And I mean it, seriously, as long as you're not sinning, as long as you're not advocating for evil or being unkind and uncharitable, you are free to share your opinion. You're free to have your opinion. But what if it makes your neighbor or your coworker or your family member not like you? What if it means that they will brand you, even if they're misunderstanding you completely, even if the problem is completely on their end? What if it makes them brand you as a certain kind of person that they despise based on their politics and yours? Again, it's not to say they're correct, but the point is they don't know Christ. And that's the most urgent thing. No one is going to hell because the wrong politician got elected. But people will face God's judgment if they don't hear about Christ. And so it could be that love would compel you to tone it down. Love might even compel you to rob the world of the blessing of knowing your opinion, just for the sake of your witness to others. Can you see how it might actually be loving to give up your freedom in order to avoid placing an unnecessary stumbling block in someone's way? As much as possible, if people are going to reject the gospel, we want them not to reject us, but to reject the real Jesus, not something about us and our personality. So as we wrap up this morning, let me just briefly uh, look at the way that Paul ran his race. So this is our third point. I think this is the big picture, and I think this is what you need to have in place if you're going to sacrifice your rights and leverage your freedoms like we've been discussing. Look there at the very end of our chapter in verses 24 to 27. We read this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Again, for Paul, this way of life, the, the way he thought about his rights and his freedoms, it was essential. Back in 23, verse 23, he says he preaches the gospel this way so that he might share in its blessings. In verse 16, he says that necessity has been laid upon him. He has to preach the gospel. And so he compares his life and his ministry to an athletic competition, to, to a race that needs to be run. I think that's a, a helpful word picture. It's one that Paul uses fairly frequently in his letters because the Christian life is hard work. Now, to be clear, we don't work hard in order to become a Christian. We receive salvation as a free gift, and we find in Christ great spiritual rest and peace when we come to him in faith. But our rest in Christ doesn't mean laziness in Christ. We are in a race where the goal isn't to necessarily beat your competitors, but to finish the race and receive your prize. And so an athletic endeavor is actually a really good metaphor. It's a lot of work. Every athlete exercises self-control in almost every area of their life. They sacrifice, they work, they train, they forego because they have a goal, because they want that prize. 
Right? The athletes in the Isthmian Games competed for a garland made of, re of, of leaves. Uh, Paul calls it a, a perishable wreath. The athletes preparing for the Olympic Games in Beijing, they probably haven't had ice cream in a long time because they have their minds set on that gold medal. So brothers and sisters, so do we as Christians. We work. We exercise self-control and discipline, not in athletic endeavors like skating or skiing, but in spiritual matters, in saying no to sin, in living in a disciplined way with our bodies, in sacrificing our freedoms for the spread of the gospel. And that might sound like an exhausting way to live, but Paul says that his eyes are on the finish line and his eyes are on the prize. There in verse 25, Paul reminds us that unlike a garland or a gold medal, our reward, the, award that, the reward that Jesus gives to those who run their race is imperishable. It's the, the blessings of eternal life with Christ. It's all the ways that he will graciously reward his people for their service to him. In Philippians 3, Paul talks about pressing on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul gives us his example. He didn't want to be disqualified from this competition. He was willing to meet the, the self-denying demands of discipleship. Right? A marathoner foregoes certain foods in order to run well. A boxer trains relentlessly in order to fight better and so must we. As followers of Christ, we need the mentality of an Olympic athlete training for competition. The entanglements need to go. The fatty foods of lust, laziness, and anger need to go. Insisting on our rights, indulging our freedoms at the expense of others, none of that's acceptable when you're training for this race. And brothers and sisters, the only way you'll be able to endure to the end is by looking to Christ looking to the love that he has bestowed on you at the cross, looking at the love that he has for all of the lost people around you who don't yet know him, looking at the eternal rest that he has provided for us when our race is over, and looking to the reward that he gives to his servants. And so as we come to the Lord's table now, let's allow it to refocus us. If you find yourself in the habit of being lazy, or undisciplined, if you've left off training to embrace sin and selfishness, if you've been boxing the air and running aimlessly, spiritually speaking, what you need is not more resolve. You don't need to simply sort of resolve that you're going to have more effort. But what you need is to see the love of Christ. You need to see that love in the broken body and shed blood of our Savior and to see all the blessings and the promises that he gives to us at the end of our race. So let's pray and then celebrate together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you and praise you for your great love for us, that you would send your son to die on the cross, to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin and rebellion. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to imitate the Lord Jesus, that you would cause us to love uh, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members enough to sacrifice our rights. And we pray that you would create in us 
increasingly the image and character of Christ, that we would be self-denying people who love others well. Help us to run our race to the end, we pray. And we do look forward to that great reward. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.